Hello, and welcome to The Two View, the cutting-edge educational interactive show for nurse practitioners and PAs in emergency medicine and urgent care. My name is PA Michael Sharma, and I practice emergency medicine and urgent care in Dallas, Texas. And I am an exhausted Martha Roberts, NP. Good to see you, Mike. And I'm getting off three 12-hour weekend nights at the San Francisco General Trauma Center. And... I just hope I can make it through the show today. I think we're going to make it okay. I, I'm also kind of recovering from a little uh, post-memorial day uh, fun. I hung out with my friend Nate and his family. Shout out to Nate. I'd like to bring him on the show sometime. He has a very particular set of skills that I think would be a cool thing to talk about on our podcast mm-hmm. to look um, and be aware of kind of like chem bio stuff and what to look for for that thing in case we have sort of a a mass cal event outside of your er something else we're both kind of revving up for is our emergency medicine boot camps and so we have our original boot camp coming up it's going to be july 26 and 27 we have a pre-course pharmacology and ultrasound courses i know a lot of nurse practitioners really need those pharmacology hours and you'll get some great hours and great instruction from michael gooch np extraordinaire he's been doing those pharmacology workshops with us for a long time. The main course is from July 28th through 31st, the Katy Perry concert, July 29th, in case you're interested in that. Katy, free admission to the boot camp. I know you're listening. Come on down and hang out with some healthcare heroes. August is our advanced boot camp, and then we're going to do a pre-course EKG and procedure workups there, and then running the original boot camp back again in December. Great Christmas gift for mm-hmm. you and a PA or NP that you might work with. Anyways, we're keeping a light, folks. It's a summer day. I've got <laughs> some good natural light coming through the windows here. Let's start off by bringing you what you need to know about monkeypox, mm-hmm. including why we as PAs and NPs might be more likely to see this than our physician colleagues. There's also some ways you're going to want to change your practice regarding this outbreak. Uh, but out of the gate, I just want to reassure everyone that if there is a massive monkeypox outbreak and we all get monkeypox, I'll be okay. Hold on. Don't you mean we'll probably be okay? I mean, like, probably, but um, for sure I'll be okay. I'll explain in a second. After that, Martha's going to talk some tips from the heart about a typical busy day in the ER for an NP or PA and what her kind of strategy is for scything through a bowls of patients that come all at the same time. And then finally, Mike is going to talk about three evidence-based tactics you can use on your next busy shift when patients are piling up. So we've got a lot of things that will help you run right away on your shift. There are a bunch of things that will save you time. These are some common time-consuming workups and interventions we're going to discuss. Mike's also going to mention an opportunity for you to get even more tactics from him for Free. 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 Free, free, free. free. I'll end on a note about a case on an allergic reaction. To give or not to give epinephrine. Hmm. Okay. I I had to give epi. uh, I've I've been giving it a lot recently. I don't know what's going on. Little Oprah epi there. Everybody gets it. Yeah, yeah. You get epi. Yeah, you get epi. You get epi. Everybody gets epi. Sadly (laughs) enough, you know, I've given more epi in this past year than I have in my entire, like, Mm. EM career, I feel like. I don't know if it's just me being more sensitive to possible anaphylaxis or scared i mean i don't know but we'll talk about that at the end you know as i was wrapping up my pd hepatitis segment on the last episode i was not thinking i'd be discussing another unusual disease outbreak on this episode but 
here we are. Let's talk monkeypox and how you should be changing your practice while this outbreak or whatever you want to call it is going on. Now, monkeypox is an endemic viral illness in parts of Africa. It's there kind of like all year round. It's been a known thing since 1970 before I was born. So why is monkeypox getting so much press now? What's different now is that usually the rare person with monkeypox reports some sort of recent travel to an endemic area. That all changed in May 2022 when multiple people on multiple continents, including here in North America, have been diagnosed with monkeypox with no recent travel to Africa, and it's unclear why. Yeah, so on May 20th, 2022, the CDC put out a health alert advisory about a cluster of monkeypox cases in the United Kingdom. As always, we will have this link to the CDC health advisory and every other reference we discuss on our website. And that, by the way, is twoview.fireside.fm, and that's the number two, view.fireside.fm. I thought that some of their guidance was very specific and really pertinent to us as NPs and PAs. They said clinicians should be especially suspicious of a rash that looked like a typical monkeypox rash in patients who, and I quote, one, traveled to countries with recently confirmed cases of monkeypox, two, report having had contact with a person or people who have had similar appearing rash or received a diagnosis of confirmed or suspected monkeypox, or number three, and again, I'm quoting here directly from the health advisory, is a man who regularly has close or intimate in-person contact with other men, including those met through an online website, digital application app, or at a bar or party. Yeah, that's pretty specific. <laughs> I agree that maybe PAs and NPs need to be more on their game about monkeypox than anyone else in the ED or urgent care. And here's why. The patients of one of these early clusters reported on uh, in the health advisory presented to a sexual health clinic, you know, for a concern for STDs. When someone checks in to the emergency department for a genital rash and they want to get checked for an STD, that's going to be a level four or five ESI. And those cases usually fall to the PA or the nurse practitioner on duty. The health advisory mentions that these lesions can be confused for other more common rashes, like herpes simplex, secondary syphilis, and zoster. Martha and I are not at all intending to shame or stigmatize any individual or any community, but both the CDC and the World Health Organization, the WHO, are making very specific note of how there seems to be a cluster of infections in the broad communities of, and now I'm quoting from a WHO press release, quote, gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. Transgender people and gender diverse people may also be more vulnerable in the context of the current outbreak, end quote. Yeah, so Mike, I laughed at the verbiage no, I know. It's you just, know, it's not, you're I not did, making fun. I'm just making sure that our audience understands this. I mean, seriously, a bar or a party. Well, why not the mall or a grocery store? That's <laughs> yeah, why I laughed. Because It's, it's like, weirdly specific, right? Like, like or, what the heck? Using an app, like meeting someone through a digital app. Like, it's just a very peculiar 
through verbiage. Bum- I agree. I met them through Bumble and not eHarmony, so I should be okay, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, that's why I laugh, just to make sure, because it's just so ridiculous. But I, I, uh, I don't know if I understand it or not. But anyway, moving on. Monkeypox, however, is not an STD. And we are here on the podcast, and both the CDC, excuse me, us here on the podcast and the CDC, and the WHO want to make it clear that anyone can contract this infection, anyone, and sexual intercourse is not required for transmission. It's thought to be spread by droplet and direct contact with body fluids, lesions, and even fomites. Speaking of rash lesions, this is how you're going to spot it. The classic rash starts out as an erythematous macule and papule, so red spots and bumps that progress to clear vesicles and later pustules. What classically differentiates most monkeypox from other similar vesicular rashes is that the lesions in a body region are usually all the same stage of development. So if someone has a rash on their arm, all the lesions on their arm will likely be roughly the same size and be the same stage of development, whether that's a macula, papula, vesicle, or pustule. Yeah, that's different from the classic description of chickenpox, let's say, where you can have uh, lesions in different stages of development. You'll have a macule here and a clear vesicle here and a crusted over pustule there. I think it's great you qualified your statements with classically. Like, usually the patients with monkeypox have a two-day prodrome with a flu-like illness. Usually... There is lymphadenopathy. It's another interesting tip there is lymphadenopathy. Usually, these grouped lesions on the same part of the body are in a similar stage of development, but it's not mandatory. So don't be fooled when you see a patient that might be affected by monkeypox, but they don't fit every single textbook feature of the disease. Uh, Keep an open mind, wear your PPE, and strongly consider testing these suspicious lesions. So... How do you test? This is a DNA virus, but the CDC is not recommending that you put them in your typical viral media like you might to confirm like herpes simplex. They give very specific directions about who to contact and how to swab and transport these uh, samples. I won't go into them here, but they are on the CDC health advisory. Check it out at our show notes at twoview.fireside.fm if you think you have a case in front of you. So let's talk about how to change your practice temporarily. First, it's being aware of this disease that it can be out there and letting it be a part of your differential when you care for a patient who is having an acute flu-like illness, fever or not. Is it just a regular cold? Is it COVID-19? Is it influenza? Is it strep? Is it mono? Both of these have lymphadenopathy. Or is it monkeypox? It's going to be tough to distinguish them from every other on day one or two of symptoms. Even shingles can have a little prodrome flu-like illness before the rash shows up. Next, I think it's asking patients if anyone, um, excuse me, if they've been in close contact with anyone who has the illness. If nothing else, you can document that they have no known close contacts with the known illness. Yeah, or any illness. You know, I'm still a little shook after reading about a malpractice case that was brought up at a talk during the regional AAPA National Convention. uh, Thank you, by the way, to Indianapolis for hosting the AAPA. I heard it was a, a real banger, and I'm looking forward to being there. I think it's in Nashville next year, so looking forward to being there. Uh, She presented to an urgent care clinic this other patient in this talk with flu-like symptoms. A PA diagnosed her with a URI, 
gave her azithromycin just in case. Not a fan of that tactic in a young person, by the way. And the patient went on to bounce back to a hospital in respiratory distress and get admitted and die from influenza and MRSA pneumonia. What was not uncovered in the patient's history taking, or sorry, the PA's history taking, was that the patient's father was admitted from his nursing home to the hospital for MRSA two days before the patient went to the urgent care. I've got a link about this case in the show's notes. Look, I'm I'm not sure if I would have cracked the code on that one if I were in that PA shoes. It's just a gentle reminder of, of the weirdness that is medicine. Yeah, that really sucks. Um, what, what we can do is ask more questions always. It never hurts to ask more questions. I also, you know, Mike, we talk about other clinical pearls and tips of sort of like putting your own spin on things. This sounds kind of silly, but I like to ask patients like, what do you think is going on? Like, yes. what do you think caused this? And that's sometimes when they say like, oh, well, um, actually I did this or this person was sick or I remember and may not seem important. Um, <clears throat> so what can make monkeypox tricky is that there can be a long incubation period, two to three weeks. So someone coming to see you may have no idea that someone they met weeks ago is now ill, but again, at least you asked and you can document that you did a thorough history. And if nothing else, it's better protection for you. One last thing we can do, Mike, is I know you will examine this rash, um, sometimes without gloves. Uh, I think it's time to to glove up, dude. I mean, <laughs> well, not, not every rash, you know, like, but, but yes, I am totally gloving up for rashes from here on out. You know, I'm not okay. taking my bare hand and like pushing on obvious like cellulitis or abscesses, but like sometimes you get these like viral exanthem looking rashes and like a pediatric patient with URI, you know, I'm not usually concerned about catching whatever virus yeah. patients have just by touching their exanthem is what mm -hmm. I'm checking for like blanching. But uh, now my concern has gone up a little bit. Mm -hmm. The CDC suggests that people may be contagious in their prodrome. So that kind of flu-like illness for two days. Um, but they are contagious by the time any rash appears until when all the lesions have crusted over and the crusts have fallen off. That can take two or three weeks, a very long contagious period. Uh, what's reassuring for me is at least I'm vaccinated against smallpox. Before I went over to Iraq, I got vaccinated against smallpox in the army because of the concern that it was going to be used as a biological weapon. This smallpox vaccine does seem to confer good protection. The number I saw was something in like the 85% range. And that's nice when the CDC is estimating mortality from monkeypox somewhere between 1% and 11%. That's kind of a wide range. I don't know if I like the top end of that range. You know, this is a developing story for sure. It went from one U.S. case on May 17th to 12 cases in multiple states 10 days later. With this long infectious period and long incubation stage, these numbers are going to rise. So keep your eyes open for new developments. Keep your differential diagnosis wide and keep your hands gloved. Also, I keep thinking like, I don't want a new disease to come out and I, I don't particularly want to be the one to name it, but I keep thinking like, what would I name my new disease? And I've decided that if I could name any disease, I would just call it na-na-na-boo-boo disease. That's what I've decided. I mean, it's not any worse than chicken gunya. <laughs> okay. Anyway, by the way, na-na-na-boo-boo -boo is still like a thing. I had some kids over yesterday afternoon and they're still saying na-na-na-boo-boo. -boo. Like what? That's like still a thing for kids. 
I'm like, you know, the, come the on. old classics die hard, you know? Yeah, really. All right, on to segment two. This segment, Mike, it's going to come from the heart and from experience. And after this weekend, I really wanted to share it. I was sort of saving it for, for some time later in the year. But after 20 years of working in the ER, I have found it worth my time sometimes to give our listeners some personal touch, some experiences uh, that might make you more likable easy to work with, and efficient, an efficient NP or PA. Sometimes it's hard to know where we belong. And that next segment that we're going to talk about after this in regards to anaphylaxis case, we'll also give you a little pointers here. But right now I'm going to talk to you about how to navigate some tricky waters. So I'd like to just outline and talk about a typical day for me in the ER when I'm collaborating on a team with physicians so that my patients receive the best care and nobody gets hurt. And when I say that, it means no patients get hurt, no one's egos get bruised, and no one is fighting or delaying or obstructing or hindering any team process for the patient. I think you're really being patient-centric here. You're going to be here in a few minutes, and I really like that. I think in the end, that's where, um, if we're having a hard day, that's where our mind should go is what is what is the best thing for the patient, and can we just all get on team patient and do that, like Ken Millen has said before. Yeah. So let's say I'm working the 10 to 10 shift. I get there at 10 a.m. I'm leaving at 10 p.m. that night, and I arrive ready to go. There are 30 people in the waiting room, and there are five traumas going on, and a new pod just opened up. So now there are eight patients in the back waiting to be seen. No one has signed up for them. Well, this is what I do. I greet my coworkers. I talk to the staff. People are typically happy to see me. For those of you that have come to the boot camp, you also know my slits theory. And that's how I start to slice and dice patients through triage and in the back. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But what's really important, and I got to tell you, this sets the tone for your whole day. When you show up there and it's busy, rolling your eyes, complaining, talking about how awful it is. Really, it just, what's the point? Be be a positive person. This is your job. You chose it. If you really hate your job, you hate the place you work in, don't just stay there because you're worried that you're going to lose your pension. That is the saddest, saddest, saddest excuse that I have ever heard for people that stay in a place that they hate. Only you are in control of of your destiny. So I'll leave that soapbox for later. But back to slicing and dicing patients. Yeah, so I, I, you know what? I'm going to, since you're vacating the soapbox, I'll go ahead and get on it. Because, like, I I used to work with a clinician, well, a staff member, really, that every single shift, this person would walk out from a patient room and throw their hands up in the air and say, I quit. Like, to a shift, this person said that every single time. And I just wanted to be like, go ahead and quit. Mm-hmm. Like, do you want me to like, oh, no, please don't. Like, no, like, you know, this is a really like, you're not making things better by by that attitude. You know, I think that there is some value in commiserating sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that people kind of, if you're a little bit too Pollyanna-ish, we're like, oh, like everything is awesome, you know. Like, there's this phrase, like this, like uh, toxic positivity, which I'm, I'm not really sold on. But like, some folks are nowadays are like, oh, it's like you're almost being too positive. Th- there's a line, right? There's right. a line, and I think you're talking about walk the line and don't go too far with the negativity and be dragging folks 
down that way. Right. And, and again, there is time that you can spend to commiserate and say, you know what, today is just really a bad day. I'm not having a great day. Um, but, you know, I always tell both my, my nurses that I train, my nurse practitioners and the PAs, you know, when you're starting off talking about a history, when the attending says, would you like to tell me about your patients? You know, that's not the time to say like, oh, yeah, I'll tell you. Joe is back again with his shit. You know, you got to leave the subjective stuff and kind of like the stuff that might cause bias for the end of your presentation. So I like to have kind of, you know, just put all that, um, you know, their complaint up front, then talk about their objective, their physical exam. And at the very end, say, hey, you know what? There's actually a mom at the bedside who's been asking me a lot of questions. So just FYI, when you go in the room, don't start off your presentation with the mom is crazy. You know, so anyway, back Got to it. back to slicing and dicing. Yeah, so you said like slits. Yeah, slits. that really caught my eye here. Mm-hmm. So I like to take an inventory. I use my slits mnemonic, that's S-L-I-T-S, to prioritize patients, especially when COVID is the chief complaint or on the differential. S is for subjective. What are these patients telling me right off the bat? L, for listen to their lungs. Are they respiratory-wise stable? I is for ill. Do they look ill? And T, what is the timing? Have they had this for years, minutes, hours? These are all the keys to the prioritization of these patients that saves me every day. You told me before about other um, S words that go along with, with S for slits. And so you've talked about like, you know, suicidal, severe, sudden. I agree that when these things are used in the patient's description, then that should kind of catch your attention. Or you should be asking about these things, like how, you know, is it a sudden onset, severe? There's ways to kind of ask them without asking them. That's kind of the art of taking a history here. But yeah, I like that slits thing. And so like, just quickly, you mentioned COVID off the bat here. Are you having a lot more cases recently? We are. Is that, that's the reason? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm having more than than I had been in the past few months. So, okay, just curious about that. Okay, yeah. great. So, slits. Yeah, so then I eyeball all the rooms. Whether I'm in triage, I eyeball the waiting room, or I eyeball the rooms of the patients that were all just placed there. And I listen for moaning, yelling, crying. I do listen for that. And then I sort of listen to the nursing chatter. You know, I wave to my regulars, and I take the time to take a mental note if they appear at baseline. I do acknowledge them. I do tell them that they're going to be seen today. And then I look at the ESI level of the patient and determine who needs to see a doctor next and who needs minor things I can quickly move so that the sick patients can come back to replace them. I repeat these steps several times during the shift and touch base with my colleagues in mini huddles throughout the day and attend any sign out. More on sign out and mini huddles later. Okay, yeah. Um, we know that signouts and other transfers, whether it's transfers between nurses, transfers between shifts, transfers between um, ED to uh, ICU mm-hmm. or, or med surge, that's a big place where things can fall out and be missed. And, and you can have these, you know, higher risk for sentinel events during those transition points. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, ASAP. Uh, the American College of Emergency Physicians touches on how important these events are and has some suggestions as far as how to do effective sign out with your staff to help, you know, again, to help what patient care. 
Yeah. You know, and in the end, that's what we're all here for. And that's the purpose of doing these, what may feel like kind of more onerous things to do. But in the end, it's for the health of the patient, the safety of the patient. And I know you're putting those in the liner notes on twoview.fireside.fm. Yeah, you, can, you can also just Google Safer Sign Out ASAP and it'll come right up if you want to use the form yeah. like today and check it out and try it. So after I've seen a few people, the sickest ones first, I get the motors going. Let's just say that I have two chest pains in their 70s that are waiting and a few abdominal pains, and then two lacerations and a potential fracture. I got that all recapped. I noticed the major important things about those super sick patients and possibly put in some orders and alert the doctor that I'm working with that maybe she could go to those rooms one and two. I'll go repair these two lacerations. I put in a note and a few orders, and then one of my attendings says, oh, hey, maybe... This person needs a chest x-ray, and I'll add it on. Or did this person need a D-dimer? What do you think? So just so I understand your setup here, so you mentioned you have this pod of eight people. So is it you and a physician working that pod together? Like you both going to come on shift, and that's your pod? Is that how that works for you? Yes, that's traditionally what we do, although there sometimes is another NP or PA, and we kind of roll with it. Nice. Okay. All right, well then, so you've got kind of like uh, the game plan, and so you divide and conquer between you and the physician and maybe, like you said, another PA or NP. Um, You know, I think probably between these patients, you guys are passing each other in the halls, you're having conversations about these patients, updating each other, having little discussions. Um, I think it's important just to keep things straight, especially when... Like you said, you have two seven-year-olds with respiratory issues. I think it's important you start a note, put down some sort of a something about their history and physical that distinguishes them from the other patients you saw that day um, just to keep things organized so that later on when you're kind of like cleaning up, it's all kind of neat and tidy for you. Yeah, creating a note as a reminder and a start time for when you began that patient care is super important. I notice a lot of times people start that note and don't put anything. It really only takes about 60 seconds to write that short history, so why not do it? Um, I don't know. Sometimes I see people, uh, NPs and PAs, they see six, seven, eight patients and they don't do a single note. And then I hear them cry, whine, complain that they have to stay late to finish their charts. I mean, if you're staffed appropriately, you don't need to carry the whole department. Why don't you keep up with the flow, but like work on your notes? Because then it's more commiserating at the end of the shift about how much you hate your job. Well, I got a chart too. So anyway. And I think it's just an it's an efficiency thing. Like you think... You think that by not charting immediately something, mm-hmm. you, oh, I could be doing something else right now. Yeah, like you could, but on the back end, it's so much harder to like dig deep into your memory here to like, what was the deal with that patient? And was it the the, the middle finger or the ring finger? And mm-hmm. like, which joint was over? Like, I agree. That 60 seconds is, it's just like going to sign out from EMS, right? Like the handoff. You go and you stop at you and you go and you receive the EMS handoff, and that is a good investment in uh, in your time. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> again, we as a team repeat these steps all day long together as a team. At no point am I intubating a patient by myself or discharging anyone without running it by the attending team. Oftentimes, we see patients together. We plan care. We talk to the patient. We let them know they are important. We involve specialists. We share the load. We know our jobs, and we know how to do them well. Let's just say that one of my patients 
with a laceration as a kid and I want to P-carn them out, right? So head CT or no. I have that crucial conversation with the attending about imaging versus not imaging, and I use evidence-based practice to make sure I am highlighting the plan of care appropriately and doing the right tests. So yeah, I can repair the lack, but I'm also making sure that the patient and their family and the attending are all on the same page. You mentioned that sometimes you have your, you know, regulars, some people call them, you know, familiar faces or, or other maybe more derogatory things here. Um, let's say you've got that regular there and they've missed whatever chronic treatment they get, whether it's dialysis or methadone, and, and they, like, they can't get back in to get their regular treatment. How, how do you handle that? Yeah, so there, there's also very unique cases that come in that you as the MP or PA can save uh, the attending from having to see and deal with, unless of course there's something really crucial going on. In this particular case, someone coming in for their methadone, without any new issues or concerning finding a problem, I think this patient can be seen by me and discharged to say like my friend Nancy down the hall. And I've called her and I've said, hey, can you just leave the window open? Um, My patient's coming back for their methadone dose. Um, I relay the plan to the attending just to say, hey, you know, Joe's here, he missed his methadone, but we're, we're kind of on target that I can get him there. Um, yeah, so the attending might swing by and say, hey, Joe, I see you're here today. Martha, it sounds like she's got your methadone. want to get you out of here so you can just get your dose. Anything else you need? You know, and, and Joe says, no, I just want my methadone. So works out well, saves a lot of time. Yeah, I, uh, I really think there's some value, and I think it's being realized by a lot of these, you know, ASAP and um, other large EM um, kind of governing bodies where it's kind of like they recognize the burden of these familiar faces and how there is harm in repeating the million-dollar workup every single time for these patients. But what's hard on the clinician is that sometimes these patients are not low-risk people. Like, I'm thinking particularly of a patient that I used to know, um, COPD, you know, late middle age, coming in with shortness of breath, occasionally some chest pain. I mean, that potentially could be a three-hour-plus workup if you're thinking about all the horrible things that could be going on there. Um, But what I did recently for a patient like that was I used some of the information from the chest pain evaluation and diagnosis guidelines we went over on a previous podcast, and I had kind of a sheer decision-making with the patient and the attending, and I said, listen, you're here for the same stuff. There's no change in your, you know, chronic chest pain. You had a heart cath in the past two years. There's a warranty on that, like we talk about, right? You're good for two years. We don't think you're going to have new um, ischemic, uh, you know, chest pain um, as long as your, your pain is the same as it usually is. It is. Hey, great. Well, look, there's a value in just doing your breathing treatments for your COP that we know you have, that this feels the exact same as as usual, and we get you going. And we did that successfully, I think, in this patient. And the patient didn't get extra pokes. Our nursing staff didn't have to give the patient extra pokes and be occupied by that patient. The patient wanted to get their shortness of breath under control. Mission accomplished. And I think she got out of there with what she wanted, and it minimized the drain on our resources. In the end, the patient was served. Yeah. 
Well, lastly, let's talk about this really critical, awful patient. You know, sometimes there's two types of NPs and PAs, ones that want to be involved in this uh, critical patient and other ones that say, oh, no, that's a critical patient. Like, I'm just going to go sit in my chair and, like, look at Google, right? So I'm I'm totally, like, putting people in in a pocket right here. Not There can be people in between. But basically, if there's a critical patient, you don't have to say, oh, the doctor's going to see that. If there's a patient that needs intubation, lines, whatever, tubes, the physician can go in the room with you together. You know, in this particular case, if it's a sick patient, I'll put an ultrasound guided line in, um, an IV line. You know, the, the physician will be at the head of the bed running the code. We'll order meds. The nurses give the meds. And hey, you know, maybe I could drop the NG tube and eventually put in a central line if needed. I mean, we run like a well-oiled machine. We work together. We discuss pros, cons, possible diagnoses, things we need to think about, catch each each other you know if we're making mistakes we're going too slow we're going too fast and it's just about support so that the patient gets amazing care yeah it's interesting you know i i know that you're not bagging on the pas or nps who have a certain kind of niche so to speak you know uh, and i'll be honest you know in my department with the acuity mix we get and the size of the department and how we're staffed um, when we get sick patients like that, we do it a little bit differently. You know, the physician goes into that room and stays there and does all that. And, um, you know, you, you've, you've, we've talked before about how you don't feel like the NP or the PA should be running to the department alone, mm-hmm. you know. And, and no, I don't think that's, that's fair or feasible for an entire shift. Yeah. But when you have a critical patient like that, like oftentimes that's kind of what happens for us. Like the physician goes into that room and doesn't leave for, you know, half an hour and and I am the traffic cop out there. And, you know, kind of like you talk about we work together. The relationship that we have, and it's not bagging on your approach because your approach works, I think, for your acuity mix and your skill set where you have, I feel like, more critical care skills than I do. And you're more comfortable with critical care um, medicine than I am, frankly. You know, um, the physician and I have worked together for years, and he trusts me that he can just be in that room and he can have a laser focus on this one patient, Mm -hmm. and he knows that I've kind of got it. Yeah. And he'll come out and we'll talk when he comes out. And, and and in a way, that's helpful for him because he can just focus and he doesn't have to worry about like, how's Mike doing out there? But I, I can, <laughs> you know. How's Mike of, doing? Yeah, hopefully he's okay while well, I drop this line here. Hopefully he's not here. dead. All right. But you know, honestly, it doesn't matter what your approach is as long as it works for you. And this one sounds yeah. like it works for you. And it I does. think that that is the whole goal here of this conversation is that we as a team of nurse practitioners and PAs get criticism for, um, you know, a lot of things. But if you're effective um, where you are and it's working and you're safe and you're used in a way that is beneficial, then keep doing that. Yep. The other lesson is if you're working in a place that sucks, I don't want to hear it anymore from you. Go away. Take a break. I'm sorry. That's the hard truth. That's what I've done my entire career. You know, I left a place I was at for 10 years and I loved it until I didn't. And I left. I lost my pension. But you know what? I am so much happier that I left that place. So that's that. <clears throat> yeah, Mike? You know, there's we just talked about how um, we have different departments. You and I work in emergency medicine and we teach at this boot camp. July coming up. Make your schedules here. But, you know, like 
we we have both got different setups for our departments and they work for us where we are at in our careers and our skill sets and and I, I think it's important that if you're stuck in a bad way in your department right now and you think that this is a decision between emergency medicine and not emergency medicine it's not like that. Like mm-hmm. I could go to Martha's Hospital and I could work in a higher acuity. Oh no, you, know, you don't want to come here right near, now. <laughs> well, I mean, or a, a similar, a similar hospital to Martha's, or Martha could come to my hospital and she could kind of take a break if she wanted to take a break from all the critical care skills, and yeah. she could do more just like you know, really, um, you know, focusing on maybe lower acuity but but higher volume if she wants to do that. Like so, like. There are different places you can work at in the emergency medicine, urgent care world. It's not just about leaving or staying necessarily. Yeah. So anyway. And in the end, oh yeah, go ahead. No, in the end, I think that uh, you got you to gotta do what makes you happy. It sounds so cliche, but you really do. For me, when people say to me, Martha, I can't believe you're driving to San Francisco for the whole weekend and you're working a holiday and their nights like why? That sucks. I can't believe your job would do that to you. And I say to them, um, I chose that. Nobody tells me what to do. I only, if anybody knows me personally, I only do what I want to do. If I didn't love it or enjoy it, I wouldn't go. So you need to find that for yourself. And and again, I know people that do the same job as me at the same hospital and they hate their lives. So it's all about what works for you. Yeah. My phrase is, you know what? I chose the thug life. There okay? you go. Like I chose this hard because there's other kinds of hard out there that I don't like. Oh, I yeah. like this hard, and I'm and I'm. I think I'm okay at this hard, doing this hard. Yeah. yeah. Oh, this has been this has been a good segment, but I I think we should move on and talk about yeah. the third segment here. Um, and uh, now I forget what we were going to talk about, Mike. What's our? I was feeling so so sentimental about how much I love my job. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. That's that's good. That's really good. Well, you know, so what I'll talk about is, you know, that, that was strategy and mindset. This is tactics, okay? These are things you can apply for your next shift. This is this kind of a talk. I gave that kind of a talk at the American Academy of Emergency Nurse Practitioners about a few weeks ago, and I wanted to share some of the tips that I you know, gave out at that talk that I felt are most high yield in a way that you can hear the rest of my talk, the rest of the tips for free. I'm going to talk three scenarios, the adult respiratory patient with possible pneumonia, the patient with a dislocated shoulder, and the patient with a migraine-like headache. All these things can sometimes take a long time to work through, work up, and discharge. Martha, how common would you say these patients are in your practice, those kind of scenarios? I had them all yesterday, and I remember them vividly. Right, exactly. So like this is these are common scenarios here. So scenario one, a generally low risk adult patient with respiratory symptoms. You've adequately ruled out any other badness beyond some sort of an infectious process. Um, and you're trying to decide between an upper respiratory infection and pneumonia. I feel like a lot of folks come to the ER nowadays with just this like subjective dyspnea. You know, like they just like, ah, I feel kind of short of breath, and you're like looking at them. And they don't look short of breath at all. And you're like, well, objectively, your vital signs are good, but they're saying short of breath, and they checked in saying they're short of breath, and their chief complaints. So you're like, all right, well, maybe they maybe they have pneumonia. I think a not uncommon practice is to take this patient and say, all right, we'll do a chest X-ray just to be sure. And if we see infiltrates or consolidation, we'll prescribe antibiotics. If we see nothing, we'll call it a URI and give it supportive care. 
Now, depending on how well-staffed you are, how high your volume is, whether you're waiting for official radiology overreads or not, or do you just go ahead and read your chest x-rays, even just doing one chest x-ray is not necessarily a short process. Let me introduce you to the Heckerling Clinical Decision Rule. Heckerling and colleagues published their rule in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 1990. This is not a super new thing. This was a prevalent study of 1,134 adult emergency department patients. So the setting matches ours. These aren't, you know, ICU patients. These aren't primary care patients. This was validated in 302 patients in multiple states. This is not, you know, a, a tens of thousands of patients study, but it's not chopped liver either. The average age of the patients was in their mid-40s. So again, these are not super, you know, necessarily like teenagers or super old people. It's a good mix. This is a five-point clinical decision rule. Each of these five data points gives you one point. They're pretty straightforward. Martha, give us those points, please. Yeah, so this is a temperature greater than 100 degrees Fahrenheit, a heart rate greater than 100 beats per minute, crackles on auscultation, decreased breath sounds, and the absence of asthma. So most of our patients already get one point for just not having asthma. Right. Um, so follow me here. Put your math hats on for a second. What Heckerling and colleagues figured was that having a score of zero or one gave you a likelihood ratio of having pneumonia-like infiltrates on a chest x-ray of 0.12 and 0.2 respectfully. So, respectively. So you were basically very unlikely to have pneumonia-like infiltrates on a chest x-ray if you had a zero or a one for this score. They kind of figure the pretest probability of an ED patient to be potentially as high as 15% of having pneumonia-like infiltrates. That, that might be higher than your emergency department, depending on your acuity level that you usually get. But basically they said, all right, we'll say 15% likelihood. Uh, you know, So they multiplied that percentage by the likelihood ratios of 0.12 and point two that they determined with their study, and they figured, if you do the math there, you've got about a 2 to 3% chance of having pneumonia-like infiltrates on a chest x-ray if you had a zero or a one on this heckling decision rule. That's pretty low. That's how low the likelihood is of a PE when you've got a low risk by Wells score and a negative per criteria. For me personally, if that number is good enough to rule out a PE, it's good enough to rule out pneumonia. Well, so in the end, we know that x-rays don't catch all pneumonias anyway. And there's a lot of subjectivity in a chest radiology interpretation. I think it's worth considering using this rule and maybe running it uh, your own experiment if you want. I'm a big advocate for calling patients back, as you know, after they've left the ED. You can always keep contact info for these patients. Call them in a few days. See how they're doing. But again, personally, if this person is low risk for crashing and burning, I'm okay with discharging and seeing how this goes. There's always a chance they get worse. Just make sure the possibility is known to the patient like you always do and tell them when and where and how to follow up. Yeah, I think I love that. Okay, so scenario two is shoulder reductions. This can be a pretty time-consuming and personal personnel, sorry, intensive process. If you're doing like a conscious sedation, then you gotta watch them to recover from the sedation. As we know, there's a lot of different ways to skin the shoulder reduction cat. Consider using the Davos or the Spazo techniques. So these are techniques for shoulder reduction 
that don't require conscious sedation. So let's talk about them real quick. So the first one, <coughs> the Davos, by the way, these are both for anterior shoulder dislocations for kind of uncomplicated shoulder dislocations, right? So like not a fracture dislocation and not in someone who maybe is having something more serious, like another really significant comorbid condition, you know, and I'll talk more about that in a second here. So let's talk the Davos technique first. The authors of the paper that we're going to put in our show notes, they retrospectively, looking back, identify or evaluated 100 patients who had an anterior shoulder dislocation, and they described this new technique. So uh, again, put on your kind of imagination hats and visualize this patient who is sitting on the stretcher in front of you. Mm -hmm. And let's say the patient has their left shoulder out. So you flex the same side knee. So the patient's sitting on the stretcher. You flex the same side knee to 90 degrees. Foot goes flat on the bed surface. Next, they take their fingers. They interlock their fingers and put them on the other side of their shin, so anterior to their shin. Then, patient gently leans backward with the neck hyperextended. So I'll usually tell patients, hey, I want you to try to look behind, like look over your head behind you. Look back that way until the arms are fully extended. So now you have, the patient is putting traction on themselves, okay? Mm -hmm. The patient also rolls or shrugs their shoulders anteriorly to help facilitate the reduction here. So the reported success rate for this process, about 60%, but as high as 85% in certain kinds of anterior dislocations and in patients under 40 years of age. Those are pretty like 85% reduced without conscious sedation and the patient can just go. Like that's worth a try for me in my opinion. Now, there are some disclaimers here in the study. About half of the patients who failed the reduction were patients who had psychiatric problems or dementia. And so like that's where I've had this process fail sometimes is where a patient had comorbid psychiatric issues. They were not really interested in trying this technique without hardcore anesthesia on board, you know? And so <coughs> really the patient has to cooperate with this technique. I also had a problem in a patient, if you can imagine, sitting on the stretcher, knee flex to 90, if they've got a pretty large abdomen, whether it's from pregnancy or from obesity, whatever, that can kind of mechanically get in the way. So those are the places where I've had this one kind of fail. So this is a 2018 publication. And um, the, actually, sorry, I'm going to go back. This actually was a little bit previously to that. But then they went and took this technique and compared it to a different technique, the spazo method for shoulder reduction, okay? This is another non-traumatic clinician control technique, a little more easier to visualize. So now your patient is lying flat on their back on the stretcher, and you take their arm, and you just gently, slowly lift it vertically by grasping the wrist, gentle traction being applied while the arm is externally rotated gently so you're pulling up and you're rotating the arm externally reported success rate 67 percent uh, in prospective studies even as high as 90 percent in retrospective 
studies, okay? And so I've had success in both of these techniques um, with, you know, I, I pre-medicated, like I gave the patient, you know, some, you know, opioids, PO. I even gave him like a shot of, um, you know, lorazepam to kind of relax him a little bit. And then uh, I was able to like dislocate, <coughs> you know? Um, sorry, relocate, not dislocate here. And, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of like one of the more like, reassuring things when like I, I did this for a patient one time in a busy shift and I went back to the attending and I was like, hey, uh, patient room one, put their shoulder back in. Uh, they're ready to go, I think. We're just going to do a, you know, a, a post-reduction x-ray. And he's like, I had no idea there was a dislocated shoulder in room one. You know, so like these are great techniques that I think are worthwhile to use on a busy shift. I'm going to save the migraine stuff. I'm going to use that as a little bit of a teaser, honestly, okay? So if you want to hear the migraine tip, then, hey, come listen to this talk I'm going to do. Uh, Facebook is starting some sort of new Facebook classes feature where people can teach classes using Facebook. And I was, you know, selected for some reason to join the instructor program to do, like, some pilot testing. I haven't hashed out the time or details quite yet, but I'll be doing this class and probably a class on how to do more advanced like Paxlovid prescribing because hmm. as you know about Paxlovid, there's a lot of medication interactions. And so I had a really interesting case I worked with the other day and I thought it would serve as a nice case study on, you know, what to do when someone has polypharmacy and whether they are good candidates or not for Paxlovid. We'll top kind of some of the more recent Paxlovid concerns as well. So a couple classes coming up. I'll put out more details on my social. Um, worst case, you just email us. Our email address is always twoviewcast at gmail.com. That's the number two viewcast at gmail.com if you hate social media. If not, look me up. Uh, I'm Mike Sharma on Facebook. I'm on a lot of the PA and NP groups. Twitter is at Michael Sharma and Instagram is at Michael Sharma PAC. Just like friend me or something and I'll post when I'm going to do these classes probably sometime in the June month here. Yeah, you should do the migraine one. That would be great. I will. Yeah, I'll talk about that. I thought there was a lot of good information on like what is the best like intramuscular shot, you know, and maybe there's other techniques we can do these kind of like nerve ganglion blocks and stuff too. So we'll talk about ways to work on migraines without putting somebody in a room with an IV and an hour wait time and, and that sort of thing. All right, Mike. So let's wrap this up today. This is a quickie case that I think is uh, kind of cool. And so I'm just going to quickly run through it. And it really, this case kind of demonstrates not only experience taking care of patients, but a true understanding of anaphylaxis. Okay. So for this segment, we're going to talk to you about anaphylaxis. And the reason why I wanted to bring it up is because I had this interesting case of a 50 year old man who was stung by a bee on his right eye lid, on Ugh. the lid itself. <clears throat> He was stung around noon, and then he came to the emergency department around 6 p.m. after taking two tablets, 25 milligrams of Benadryl. And the reason why he ended up coming to the emergency department is because he was concerned about the amount of swelling in his face, right? That was his main thing. Sure. Why did you end up coming six hours later? It wasn't the pain. It wasn't um, really anything other than this swelling on the face. He said in the past he had gotten, quote, an injection before, but he didn't think it was epinephrine. So we went through all those questions. And he said, you know, um, when I said the words prednisone or steroid, he was like, ah, yes, it was a steroid shot. I know that. And he had never been intubated or had any swelling of his lips, his tongue or trouble breathing or any other respiratory complaint after a bee sting. 
This immediately made me think about what is mild, moderate, or severe allergic reactions from a bite or sting. Or is yeah, it I've- anaphylaxis? Right, exactly. Yeah, because it's an important thing to to decide early on what you're going to do. You know, anaphylaxis causes the immune system to just flood the patient's body with chemicals that can go uh, cause the patient to go into shock. Your blood pressure drops, your airway narrows, your breathing is obstructed here. Some signs and symptoms you may see are a rapid, weak pulse. Maybe you see a skin rash, generalized, or maybe you have the patient having some abdominal pain and nausea and vomiting. You know, true anaphylaxis is sometimes hard to recognize, especially if you've got kind of a later onset presentation or if there have been medications that have been used since um, the, the exposure. For people that have a history of epi or epipens, epinephrine in the hospital, you know, you consider you're probably going down that path. They're a little bit higher risk individuals. Yeah. So though, although anaphylaxis can be multifactorial and multisystematic, the key elements of knowing when to give epinephrine versus not is to consider the involvement of the tongue, lips, or throat. Respiratory compromise may be mild or severe at first. It could just be like, oh, scratchy throats, you know. Um, but sometimes pulling the trigger early on epi is necessary and life-saving. And it's so hard, right? Because like... I had a patient that had a pediatric patient, real big swelling of the lips. And it's like, oh, lips, airway, am I got to put epi on this kid? But it's like everything else was so reassuring. And we made the hard decision to not give epi that time. And, and thankfully, that time we were right. But I could totally see this going the wrong, the other direction. You know, when like the patient progresses and it's like, now you're regretting um, not giving epi earlier. And so that's, mm. it's not always a slam dunk and, and it can really yeah. be a tricky diagnosis to, to, to get. It's like, I want to get that tattoo, like as an ER worker, <laughs> no regrets. Yeah, right? exactly. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so simple urticaria or localized swelling may be a sign of allergic reaction, but not necessarily anaphylaxis. So when I think about the signs of anaphylaxis, I like to break it down into systems. Like I said, skin, central nervous system, cardiovascular, GI, and airway. So about 80 to 90% of all allergic reactions of sorts will have some kind of hive, urticaria, itching, flushing skin, um, or any rotation of those things around the body. The other some 10% may just have simple localized irritation that will subside on its own unless it's the face. And that responds, I would like to say, aggressively. For the unlucky about 30% of people with severe allergic reaction will have cardiovascular events like chest pain, hypotension, tachycardia, weak peripheral pulses, kind of that shocky looking presentation. And occasionally patients will develop these GI issues like nausea, abdominal pain, vomiting, or diarrhea. Yeah, you know, there's a couple scary presentations. You know, one scary presentation is the airway compromise, of course, right? They've got tightness and swelling of the throat. They've got this kind of hoarse voice, scratchy throat, trouble breathing or wheezing. I also get concerned when I see vital sign abnormalities, you know, like that kind of wide pulse pressure with a really like an outsized low diastolic compared to their systolic um, or, you know, their heart rates like super high. 
I'm I'm worried about those situations for sure. Yeah. And we've all had those patients that get epi right through their genes. So let's go back to talking about this guy with the bee sting to his upper eyelid. This was definitely a really scary presentation at first. But after about an hour or two of observation, and since it was almost eight hours after his initial sting, he was classified into the more mild or moderate reaction. Not anaphylaxis. The fact that he was stung on his eyelid was precarious and distracting because the skin is very thin over the eyelid and very sensitive. And like I said, the face is aggressive. It responds aggressively to irritation, um, bites, stings, trauma. So it scarily swells and looks bad, sometimes worse than it really is. Swelling and periorbital edema can occur simply from the actual trauma from the sting around the area that might concern the practitioner for anaphylaxis. But given the severity of the swelling here, um, this guy deserves some observation, which we did. In the case of this patient, he had no respiratory compromise and wasn't necessarily a candidate for epinephrine, although I was thinking about it. Yeah, I think that's fair to be be considering it for sure and maybe documenting, hey, I didn't give epi you know, in real time because of this or that reassuring factor. Yeah, I'm forever um, telling trauma patients who get hit in the forehead, right, or have like a big cut on their face, hey, look, you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and you might not be able to open your eye underneath that uh, wound. Don't freak out as long as you otherwise feel good. Yes, I'm always telling folks about how loosey-goosey that tissue is underneath the eye. I love that you're, you're considering that anatomic issue here. You know, traditionally, we've talked on previous episodes about how to treat urticaria, how to treat allergic reactions. And so there's a place for your histamine 2 receptor inhibitors, like your Tadine medications, Famotidine, Cimitidine. You've got steroids to consider, whether it's prednisone (coughs) or methylprednisolone, and then some sort of like an H1 um, you know, antihistamine. You know, Benadryl is kind of like the the um, like traditional one, but you know, we talked, I think, pretty compellingly in previous episodes about how you can do Claritin, you can do uh, sorry, uh, loratadine, you can do fexofenadine, you can do some of these non-sedating antihistamines, and you can get some good relief from allergy as well. Okay. This is different than if this patient has like angioedema. So like, let's say it's a beta blocker or they have one of these weird, you know, like um, familial angioedema things. Mm-hmm. That has to do with bradykinin. And, and that's not affected by uh, allergic issues, even though that's kind of like the knee-jerk reaction. Give this person Benadryl and steroids, right? Like that's a wholly different process. We're not covering yeah. that today. We're focusing on patient stung by bee allergic reaction from that known exposure. Right. So this triad of medications that you're giving, you know, you're giving the Pepsi, the prednisone and some Benadryl, those are all fine. And then there's a lot of uh, controversy in studies that talk about treatment times. They're variable. Some people do three days. Some people do five. Some people do seven. Some people do a taper. There's just really not great evidence on tapering. So I really have done away with that. A good rule of thumb is to prescribe the medications for at least five days, and doing a taper isn't isn't indicated. So in this particular case, the patient got Benadryl, Pepsid, and 40 milligrams of prednisone in-house. He was prescribed the same for the next five days. He was given an EpiPen, 
in case he developed any kind of airway compromise. And a really nice clinical pearl here is to divide the prednisone into 20 milligrams BID instead of a whopping dose of 40 just before bed. Um, that can cause anxiety and insomnia. I often tell patients to take the Benadryl along with the prednisone at bedtime. What I really wanted to talk about is the administration of epinephrine in this patient, right? So mild, moderate symptoms of allergic reactions, not necessarily anaphylaxis. Epi is not without side effects, as we know, on the central nervous system, and it can be uncomfortable for patients, causing more issues and discomfort than their actual problem. Um, so we really don't want to pull the trigger on that epi unless we really are certain that we should. Is it terrible if you do and it wasn't indicated? Well, you'll never really know, right? Because the patient will get better. They'll have relief of some of their symptoms, right? right? The best overall approach to allergic reaction um, uh, for patients that present to the emergency department is observation. Yes, I said it. Hang on to these patients. They are the ones we want to hang on to and don't feel bad about it. Yeah, I kind of feel like I'm contradicting myself talking about like how to get patients out of the emergency department. But exactly like this is what I think is the best thing. And not even necessarily the medications are more important. The observations are more important. Let's follow this patient over the next half an hour. That's what we did with this uh, person I took care of who had big lip swelling. And I was concerned about what was going on with them. I just kind of watched them and they didn't progress. And we discharged them with pretty much exactly the medication regimen that, that you described here. Okay. For the mild to moderate uh, algae sufferer here, um, you know, Benadryl or some sort of other antihistamine. I'm a big fan of other kinds, to be honest. Um, some sort of steroid, consider that. And then the Pepsid or the H2 blocker is probably gonna be enough, frankly, to control this mild to moderate allergy reaction. If the patient decompensates in front of you, whether it's vital signs or addition of new other symptoms in different body symptoms, or appears to have a serious respiratory compromise, then Epi. Epi is your first line therapy. Don't think twice when it's something that severe. Just go ahead and give it. But don't be fooled by these facial stings, especially to the loose tissues around the eye that are localized reactions that don't involve the lips, tongue, or throat. Localized irritation in those areas can cause real bad swelling, but they're not necessarily candidates for epinephrine because of that swelling. So we're going to post an article from the AAFP in regards to managing these patients in our liner notes, which is a really good summary. In this particular case, just to close the loop, the patient did not present with clear anaphylaxis, so we observed him for several hours in the emergency department. He left several times to eat, smoke, and make phone calls, but always returned to the emergency department where I laid eyes on him. I opened his mouth, and I looked in there. I listened to his lungs, um, and uh, we had an agreement. So you might find it very strange that this is how I take care of patients in my emergency department, right? This sounds horrible. Um, but for my particular area of work at San Francisco General, the patients come first. Um, so that means they come and go as they please, regardless of whether we skip their name or can't find them. Um, in a perfect world, these patients would be in a room on a monitor where a nurse observes them every, you know, 15, 30, 60 minutes. In this particular case, patient got better. Um, I saw him eating, drinking, and smoking, and he was discharged home safely. I really need to come and shadow you on a shift at San Fran General someday. It just sounds I like that Mars. I love that place. I love it. It's, <laughs> well, it's difficult work. And, yeah, and like I said, it was a really rough weekend, but I still love it. Yeah. Well, there you go. In summary, localized swelling to the face or the neck from a sting can be difficult to distinguish from a localized reaction versus a systemic anaphylactic reaction. 
our suggestion, as much as we're talking about being aggressive and efficient and disposing patients quickly, these ones, spend time with them. Look at them multiple times. Check in on them frequently. Document your, you know, frequent times when you check on them and how they're coming along. It's okay to go ahead and give that, you know, at least you give the antihistamine and the H2 blocker steroids. I, you know, like, like you mentioned, people feel weird on steroids, you know, and um, looking at some of these recent guidelines, I'm kind of pulling back on my steroids. Like another way to consider my opinion is you give them directions for hydrocortisone Mm -hmm. cream, right? Local application of hydrocortisone cream, H1 blocker, H2 blocker, and I'm prescribing steroids. And if you're not clearly getting better after a couple of days, yeah, you go ahead and take the steroids. But otherwise, you don't worry about the steroids. Because I've gotten patients who have bounced back. Like you said, they feel terrible on the steroids. They come on back. Okay. In the end, epi, if there's respiratory compromise, um, if that's mandatory as the number one treatment, there's only one treatment for anaphylaxis. It's epinephrine. Okay. In the end, you want to avoid the intubation in this patient with respiratory compromise um, and anaphylaxis. Yeah. So last pearl, Mike, this is the one that I find very key. And people always, the nurses sometimes look at me funny, like, why? Why? Well, I work in triage a lot and anaphylaxis occurs. And sometimes it's hard to draw up the epi. You know, you pull it and then you pull down the pants. Like in a pinch, (laughs) crack the code cart, grab your epi pen and put it right through those jeans. Honestly, save you time and airway. And that is key. Yeah. That's worth investing in there. Yeah. It's not cute, but it works. Yeah, look, man, that's that should be uh, in bright lights on the outside of every emergency department. You know, emergency department, it's not cute, but it works. Okay. Well, this show, Something Sweet, is a personal one for me and Martha. We both happen to have two loved ones go to the emergency department and get admitted to the hospital. Coincidentally, very same day, we're both happy to report that they were able to be safely discharged and they're recovering at home right now. Yeah. Uh, weird thing is, is that they were also, um, so they were admitted on the same day and they were discharged on the same day. And we both talked, uh, and I was like, wow, what a coincidence. Different towns, right? Different hospitals. You know, it wasn't like Yeah, not room together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They happen to come in at the very same time. No, it's not, nothing like that. Okay. So number one, we're so happy you guys are okay. Number two, a big shout out to all the caregivers at the hospitals that took care of our loved ones for me. It's a thank you to the fine folks at the Sierra campus of the Hospitals of Providence in El Paso, Texas, especially Dr. Madhu Achala. And for me, huge thank you to Dr. Brendan Carmody, who is the Assistant Director of the Emergency Department at Suburban Hospital in Maryland. I'm so grateful for you and your team and the people who helped. Thanks, folks. Thanks to the physicians. Thanks to the nurses, the PAs, the NPs that were all involved in the care of our loved ones. Well, let's talk about our trivia question. We've talked about it. Boot camp's coming up in July. You got the advanced camp in August, December's. You know we're running it back for our boot camp course. Again, the original one. You win this trivia contest. You can come join us in Las Vegas this July. You get 20% off of a boot camp course. Oh, actually, Mike, Mike, I have been told by Rick that we may give one more free course. So this one, the winner of this one gets a free course. Whoa. Free course. That's a huge value. And that Mm -hmm. can also apply if you, like, don't want to hang out with us, uh, a (laughs) self-study course. Or if you do want to hang out with us, just not in Vegas, do the acute care series course, emergency medicine and acute care. That's at a couple of cool locations every year throughout the country here. A free course. Okay, that's awesome. 
Yeah. So here is the question from last month and the answer. We asked, uh, we've been following Kenny Mintz, a friend to the show and someone we've had on show episode 14. He's walking across America to raise funds for pancreatic cancer and um, the Johnny Mac Soldiers Fund and Operation Resiliency. His 3,000-mile journey began on April 1st, 2022 at the Ligon Memorial, and it's going to end in NC... Uh, where? Where is it ending? In uh, Encinitas? Ah, Is that okay. right, California? I know yeah. it's over there in your neck of the woods. Yes. And you can follow him at Kenny Walks Across America on Facebook and Instagram or his Facebook group, Kenny Walks Across America group. So our question basically was, name some places that Kenny has stopped and two key facts about those places. Um, well, let me tell you, we got a lot of answers on that one. Kenny is actually on day 49. And he was recently in Indiana. He had some really nice luck there, got some travelers with him. He was given a, a hotel, um, some hotel.com stuff and uh, people really just supporting him. He was also recently in Ohio and Kentucky, and he's making his way all the way across the country. So nice work, Kenny. Can't wait to see you. The winner was Jesslyn Haynes from Seattle, Washington. So we're going to make sure that Jesslyn gets what she um, deserves. <laughs> that sounded really ominous, but we promised it's something good, okay? So, yeah, don't worry about Jessalyn. All right, so this month's question, um, which of Newton's laws states that for every action, there is an equal and opposite to reaction, and in what year did Newton die? All right, so we're, we're going back to our high school physics here, and uh, please go ahead and email us your response at twoviewcast at gmail.com that's number two viewcast at gmail.com first respondent gets a free boot camp course yeah and you know mike um i put that question in here for a couple of reasons everything you do something's gonna happen everything you say something's gonna happen every bad attitude or good attitude something's gonna happen from that so yes i mean we're talking about physics laws here but if you want to theoretically apply this to uh, some psychological stuff, that's kind of why I threw it in. Um, but like the, it. the year in which he died is going to be a little interesting of an answer. So <clears throat> we're ending. That's it for, for this uh, month. For more information about us and our faculty, visit our website featuring all our upcoming courses at www.ccme.org. And consider coming to see us in July um, or any other time this year, post-vaccine, of course. So next boot camp, as we said, July 26th through 27th for the pre-course farm and ultrasound courses. The main course is July 28th through the 31st. August is our advanced boot camp course where we'll have that EKG um, and imaging uh, boot camp in which I will be attending. Very excited about that. And then again, we have our regular boot camp course in December. Please check out all of our self-study courses, farm course, heart course, EKG course, everything at www.ccme.com. Dot org. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Two View. You can, and please do, subscribe and rate us on Apple iTunes Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Search for Two View Emergency. That's the number Two View Emergency, and it'll come right up. And you know, I'm just going to audible this in here. We're going to start putting in some uh, reviews um, from people who do review us here. We're going to read them on air. You can hear your name on the air. I, I, it's been really like um, reassuring to me to hear that people are enjoying the podcast and are taking the time to, to rate us. It really does help us climb the charts so that other clinicians can get some of that two-view goodness you're getting right now. 
If you like YouTube and want to see the video blog instead, I'm wearing a fetching Hawaiian shirt here. Martha's got a nice, you know, blouse on. Uh, if you want to see that, go ahead and search for Center for Medical Education. You can catch the video version. Don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of our topics from any of our episodes, including all the papers and sites we referred to. That's twoview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Recky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple. Thank you for tuning in, friends and EM. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us today on The Two View. Have a good day and a great shift. And enjoy your nap, Martha. Peace out.